Welcome to Hidden Cities, a podcast about the invisible infrastructure that shapes urban spaces and experiences. Rather than looking at cities from a design perspective, Hidden Cities explores how policy and legislation informs our built environment. This series of Hidden Cities is kind of an idiot's guide to housing affordability, where I'm your idiot speaking with experts to make these often complex policies understandable. If you want to know why negative gearing was such a political hot potato, what Airbnb means for rental availability, or feel like you will never be able to afford your own home, Hidden Cities helps to explain why. This episode begins to unpack global financial markets as a way to understand how to legislate for housing as a human right. If that sounds absurd, it's because it is. I contacted Leilani Farah, who recently finished her tenure as the United Nations Special Rapporteur for Housing, to help me to understand how global finance helps to inform local housing conditions. Despite now being the head of the shift, a global movement to secure the human right to housing, Leilani Skyped me from Canada to discuss the global financial crisis, housing in a pandemic, and how governments can legislate for housing rights. When did the shift from housing as a home to housing as an investment kind of really begin and what has exacerbated that in recent years? Yeah, that's a good question. And I get, I do get asked that question um, sometimes. And, you know, I want to be clear, housing has long been a commodity of sorts, or at least it's, it's been commercialized, let's say. I mean, mortgages are a financial instrument and they've been attached to housing for a really long time, you know certainly since the Second World War. You know, I want to differentiate that from the kind of uber commodification and financialization that I talk about in my work and that I'm so deeply concerned about, uh, because there's a difference. So where we see this kind of, as I said, uber commodification or financialization come about is really after the global financial crisis. You know, you might scratch your head and say, wait a second, wasn't the global financial crisis about the ruin of financial instruments being attached to housing? And wasn't the global financial crisis about the ruin of families and foreclosures? And and how could it be that that it would lead to this uber commodification of the <laughs> of, of housing? And I mean, that's the trick, right? So what happened um, after um, 08 and 09 was that there were a lot of what people call distressed assets. So that's families and individuals who cannot pay their mortgages and their homes foreclose, right? So the bank, they they're, you know, the bank now has on its books some what they call bad debt. In case you, like me, are unfamiliar with the term, a distressed asset sale involves a business selling an asset at less than market value in order to obtain cash quickly. When I Googled it, one of the first results was from an asset management firm explaining how COVID-19 presented excellent opportunities to acquire distressed assets. And um, there was a lot of it, right, across the U.S. in huge numbers, across certain parts of Europe, in particular Southern Europe, uh, Italy, Portugal, Spain, and other places, Ireland as well. And so what you saw was this move by private equity firms to buy up not 
the houses per se, but the debt. And the debt was going cheap because the banks needed to be bailed out, right? They didn't want all this bad debt on their hands. And so they're like, here, we'll give you, if you buy this debt, we're going to give it to you at a, at a sale price. And so you had big private equity firms, in particular Blackstone, come in and buy up a huge amount of debt, bad debt. And that meant let's say something like 60,000 single family homes in the US uh, mm-hmm. and uh, units uh, in buildings in Spain uh, and um, elsewhere. And then what they did was they did modest repairs, upgrading, etc., and rented out what were homes. And so these became rental accommodation and they charged a premium, you know, a good solid rent. And they made a big amount of money on this cheap debt that they had bought. And that then becomes a model and it gets used in a whole variety of different circumstances, not just with single family homes, but also with entire apartment complexes. And that's where we're at today, where you've got asset management firms and private equity firms, pension funds, insurance companies, companies buying up entire apartment buildings, doing maybe modest repairs and using that as a means of jacking up the rent. People can't pay their rent. Units become unaffordable. People are having being driven out of their homes and the cost of living is, is increasing in cities, particularly with respect to housing. And I feel like there's been a lot of discussion at the moment about kind of positive potentials and changes that might emerge from the current pandemic crisis. But I was wondering about what threats lie on the horizon about repeating and exacerbating that financialization that happened post GFC. And can you see that being repeated in this current crisis? Yeah. So, so it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, I've heard a lot of people saying, you know, hey, look at governments are doing all sorts of things that was that were unimaginable just two months ago, and a lot of optimism. I am quite concerned. I don't think that governments are making big structural changes. I think they see uh, at their doorstep emergency. And I think they're addressing the pandemic as an emergency. I don't think they're saying we want to upend the way in which housing has been dealt uh, since uh, 08 and even before to some degree on, in, in other ways. Uh, rent, rent protections, for example, predate bad, poor tenant protections in, in terms of rental accommodation. That predates 08. That's what yeah. made 08 and 09 so ripe, you see, because since the 1980s, we had basically neoliberalism uh, in the area of housing. Governments took a big step back from social housing. They took a big step back from tenant protections. And then they created this very uh, nice tax environment for home ownership. And then now eventually they've made a very nice tax environment and regulatory environment for these big actors to come in and buy so many thousands of units all at once. So, so I don't see in the here and now, in the midst of this pandemic, I don't hear any government saying, oh, yeah, you know, tenant protections were so bad before the pandemic. Let's change that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What I hear government saying is, yeah, we understand you can't pay your rent now, but you're going to have to pay and, you know, you're going to have to pay later. 
right? So so there isn't some, I don't see some new thing. There's a moratorium on evictions. They're saying, yeah, no evictions now, but you may be evicted later if you don't pay your rent, you know? So there's that concern. That's on the sort of legislative regulatory side. And at the same time, I do know that the big financial actors are um, like the private equity firms. And it's not just Blackstone. Blackstone is one of, of many these days. It's the asset management firms as well. Um, they are the ones that still have money and liquidity, at, right? So a lot of people are really suffering right now and um, don't have liquidity like the average household. <laughs> um, but these big financial actors still are sitting on a lot of money and they need to invest it somewhere. And so I am concerned that there will be a lot of, in quotes, distressed assets or cheap debt as a result of this pandemic. And these guys, and they are mostly guys, will swoop in and pick it up. Um, and you see, so you might ask yourself, well, why would they do that? Because, you know, we know we're going to be in a global recession for some time. I mean, every economist is predicting it, right? We're already in the recession. And so why would they Why would they do that? Well, these guys have enough money that they can sit on assets for a few years. They don't want to sit on the assets for too long. Like, they're not going to want to sit on them for 20 years to make a profit, but five years why not? And that's what they did in Spain, right? They waited the kind of five years for Spain to rebound after the global financial crisis. And and so that's the concern for sure. And, you know, Steve, Stephen Schwartzman, the, the CEO of, of Blackstone, um, has said there was something in the Wall Street Journal saying, you know, this is a, a once in a generation opportunity to buy assets. Wow. So that's pretty worrying. <laughs> <laughs> By early April, the Blackstone Group had raised $10.7 billion, that's billion, not million, for the European Property Fund. The uninvested capital will be used for opportunistic property bets on distressed assets to repeat the success that was so profitable for the Blackstone Group in the wake of the 2008 global financial crisis. Blackstone have been criticised for inflating rents, aggressive evictions and exploiting tenants. And I'm sorry to tell fans of oat milk, but they recently invested in a 10% state in Oakley Milk. And I guess from a um, kind of legal or governance position, what can countries or perhaps at sort of state or local government level, but are there any levers available to governments to intervene to, to stop these finance companies from buying up this debt and then perpetuating this model again? Yeah. And not only are there means for governments to do this, they must do this. Um, governments have to return to their commitments, their international human rights law commitments, their legal commitments. And those commitments say that everyone has the right to an adequate standard of living, including adequate housing. And adequate housing is defined under international human rights law as a place to live in peace and with security and dignity. And further, that uh, housing is only adequate if it's affordable, if you have security of tenure. So this financialization obviously really jeopardizes affordability and security of tenure. And so governments, you know, have an obligation to return to those commitments. And so what does that mean in practical terms? 
Well, first of all, I think now is the time for governments to revisit any housing strategies that they have on the books and to make sure that those strategies are compliant with their international human rights obligations. That is embracing housing as a human right and legislating it as a human right so that people know that governments are taking very seriously this human right. But it also means some super practical things. I think governments are in a good position right now though they may cry poor, to buy those distressed assets themselves. And, you know, whether it's through the right of first refusal or some other mechanism, they can buy those distressed assets and increase uh, their uh, public asset stock. And, you know, they don't have to treat everything that they purchase as social housing, but it could be in the public in the hands of the public, right? And that means more accountability. That's super important. So, you know, let's say government X purchases uh, 50 buildings, uh, decides three of them are office buildings and decides to repurpose them as some kind of housing. That becomes all very, if it's if it's public, then that suggests there would be some uh, higher level accountability than when Blackstone goes in, buys a building, no one knows, it's not a, a public, let's say it's not done through share, public shareholders. There's no way to hold Blackstone accountable. It's very difficult, whereas we can hold governments accountable. So, and it would allow governments to uh, replenish uh, depleting housing stock and, and housing stock that's affordable or deeply affordable or social. So I really am trying to encourage governments to do that and all levels of government. It doesn't have to only be national government. All levels of government have human rights obligations and some city level governments do have the capacity to do this. So I think that's super important. And then, you know, governments have made, as I said, the legislative uh, landscape very easy for these big actors, uh, financial actors to come in, big capital to come in. And and I think it's time to clean, clean that up and make yeah. that consistent with human rights. And so, you know, that means um, better tenant protections, whether it's through longer uh, leases, whether it's through rent freezes, so rents remain, you know, the same price or cost over a long period of time, like five to seven years, that's normally fairly hostile to a, an investor who wants to get in and get out quickly um, and make a profit. And they can close some of these tax benefits uh, given to these big actors who use fina certain financial instruments that don't result in heavy taxes. Uh, so for example, real estate investment trusts, it's, it's, it's a financial instrument basically that makes it possible to buy a whole bunch of uh, units all at once. And those it have favorable tax status. And so governments could just simply, you know, very quickly change the tax status for an REIT or a REIT, as we call them. And, and that would, you know, change the landscape immensely. So I think, you know, there's a whole bundle and package of things. And, you know, what you will notice is that my recommendations are not only housing specific, that they are, that they go into finance and, and taxation. Um, housing is always misunderstood as being about bricks and mortar. And it's, it's much more more than that. Oh, and I should say one last thing. Yeah. We wouldn't have a good podcast if we didn't talk a little bit about Airbnb. If you haven't already listened, Hidden Cities has its own episode that investigates the impact of Airbnb on housing affordability. 
And so someone should be tabulating on a global scale. Uh, maybe that's my job. Uh, <laughs> the number of units that are now going to long-term rent or um, that were Airbnb previously prior to the pandemic, because that would be such a lovely global snapshot of how much housing stock is taken up by Airbnb. Obviously, now is the time for all levels of government to uh, think about this and think about how they want to regulate Airbnb. One thing that I was interested in was thinking about kind of the current pandemic and people who have who are already living in landlords as corporations or real estate investment trusts. And I guess um, from your experience, in addition to issues of affordability, what are the other issues associated with having a corporate landlord? Like how could you negotiate a decrease in rent because of a pandemic or what kind of what would a rent strike look like if you've got a corporate landlord so i'm hearing lots of different things about one's ability to negotiate with a corporate landlord both during a pandemic and really frankly outside of a pandemic because what the pandemic has exposed is so many people are living on the edge right one month of underemployment or unemployment meant that for many people, they couldn't pay their rent the next month. That just shows you the precarity of people who are renters. Some Obviously, they are some of the most vulnerable populations worldwide, next to who? People who are homeless, right? I mean, that's, that's the line. The line yeah. between a renter and south of a renter is someone living in homelessness. So we have a very um, vulnerable population in most societies in, in renters. Not to say all renters are vulnerable, but many are. The impossibility of a corporate landlord negotiating with a tenant because a tenant is experiencing an emergency, whether it's the pandemic or not, is very limited. And it's not just because of the faceless, nameless corporate landlord. And, like, and we hear that, you know, oh, I was given a 1-800 number to call and I, I couldn't get through, you know, that sort of thing. It's not just that. The actual business model is one that requires a certain return on the investment, both because the investor is being pressured and has basically told and, you know, those who are investing, I'm going to get you a 10% return in the first year of your investment or, you know, an overall return of 30% on your investment or more, right? So, yeah. so that requires a kind of diligence in getting rent from the renters, right? Extracting the rent. And I understand that in, in some jurisdictions, in order to get the tax benefits of a REIT, you have to have a 95% occupancy rate and rents being paid on that occupancy rate, right? And so that means there's no or very little wiggle room. I think it's for that reason that uh, corporate landlords threaten eviction so much. Maybe they don't go through with it, but they threaten it because it, it forces tenants to pay and they need tenants to pay so that there's a return on the investment. And, and then they also do this thing where they will ding you for all sorts of, in quotes, infractions, whether it's paying your rent one day late or whether it's putting a flower pot where it shouldn't be. You get all sorts of fines and they use the fines and interest on fines to also ensure 
that return on the investment, right? The flow of investment dollars. So not a pleasant situation. And I think during a pandemic, that's just exacerbated. Maybe not. Maybe these corporates are going to um, be nicer. But we're hearing stories starting to emerge of though evictions are there's moratorium on evictions almost worldwide. There's still threats of eviction despite those moratoriums, for example. So we need to start tracking this stuff a lot better, I think. It's kind of fascinating to think that investing in real estate used to feel like this kind of speculative investment, but now investors see it as such a stable thing. There's almost a assumption of a guaranteed return on investment and a shift around the thinking about that, that, you know, no matter what they are, they've earned some kind of guarantee of return. Um, I think that's right. And I mean, think about it in the context of the pandemic, because I was thinking about it. Well, gosh, are they really going, are are investors really going to think real estate is a sure bet? residential real estate is a sure bet in a pandemic and you know with a global recession and etc but the bottom line is people need a place to live and most households will pay their rent before anything else and you see that because that's why people use food banks because they've used all their money on their rent and then they go to the food bank they use all their money on the rent and then they go to the secondhand store to buy their clothing and clothing for their children and you know they go to the church to get handouts of games and whatever they need for their children so rent gets paid first so it will continue to be a good investment post-pandemic despite the recession and that's really scary and we saw that of course with the global financial crisis. I guess that kind of leads me to my last question and from your experience at the UN and now with PUSH um Obviously, there's like real necessity for um, policy and legal interventions, but how important is a shift in mentality about housing as a human right? And I guess the curlier question is, how do you achieve that? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, we started the shift because we felt there had to be a shift in paradigm, and that's about the way people think. And it's huge, actually. And when I start thinking about having to get the world to shift it, it seems huge. (laughs) It seems impossible because everyone, it's very different than other social and economic areas. So, for example, health. If you extract the United States from the equation, I mean, most people believe governments should provide health care and should be actively engaged in the provision of health care. And I think the pandemic is a perfect example, right, where everyone's looking to government, right, help us, right, get us yeah. to the ventilators, right. And if you look at education, especially elementary school, high school, we expect uh, an investment in education and governments to be there, And everyone, you know, if you were sitting around a dinner table talking to people and you heard that governments were completely selling off schools to to the privates and suddenly everyone was going to have to pay for elementary school, there would be outrage in many, many countries, all all of Western Europe, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, right? There would be outrage. And so even in the United States. So that is not the same with housing. I mean, what do most people talk about when they're sitting around the table in, if they're talking about housing, they're talking about the fact that, oh, my God, I bought my house five years ago. It's doubled in value. Uh, you know, parents talking, oh, 
I really hope that my children are going to be able to, you know, get a groovy house or a good house somewhere. And that's something people should aspire to purchase. And, um, you know, it's a it's a good place to park your money. I mean, that is so entrenched in the way people think and live. Um, so, yeah, that's a that's a big thing that has to um, shift. What I do think the pandemic is exposing is that people are more open to that than I might have thought. A lot of people now understand that in the face of a deadly pandemic, the best protection is to have a home in which you can stay. And I think people are really realizing, oh, shit, refugees. Oh, you know, homeless people. Oh, people in congregate settings, long-term care. You know, people are starting to realize how how valuable home is in so many ways. And so so maybe now is a, uh, the most excellent time for me to be the global director of the shift, even though I can't, it's a, supposed to be a global movement and I, I can't go anywhere. So it's I have to meet everyone through Zoom. It might be just the right time to uh, move along that paradigmatic shift. I do think that governments are are quite receptive to this some governments are quite receptive to this city level government in particular right now because they're really on the front line of the pandemic and they're freaking out and they know that if they have a homeless population for example that gets covid their entire population is at risk and their entire population remains on on lockdown so so i'm i do find some receptivity there What's harder is to get governments to understand that they do need to legislate, that they do need to, that that human rights is a way of governing, that it is a way to make decisions, um, and that that those are actually legal obligations. That's harder. So I have a lot of work to do. We'll leave Leilani to do that work. Information on The Shift, the global movement to secure the human rights to housing Leilani mentioned, you can find at maketheshift.org. And the film The Push, which explores why life is so unaffordable, featuring Leilani in her then role as the United Nations representative on adequate housing, also has its own podcast series called Pushback Talks. Watch the film, listen to the podcast, then listen to the last episode of this podcast with Dallas Rogers, who pulls together many ideas from the Hidden City series to discuss the policies and narratives of the Australian dream.